Today we conclude our series in Title Seven. We've been looking at the seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus addresses in letters that are found in the second and the third chapter of the book of Revelation. And we've been looking at each letter with the idea of seeing what Jesus has to say to the particular church and the particular situation in which they find themselves, but also we're taking Jesus up on his offer in each letter for those of us who have ears, those of us who are here today, to see what we can learn from what Jesus has to say to them. We've been kind of taking the approach uh, that Earl Palmer suggests, that we've been kind of uh, avoiding luxurious interpretations. Uh, But rather, we've been looking at each letter as we would maybe pretty much any other letter in the New Testament, because what these letters do is they teach us the gospel and its implications for our life. If you've missed any of the other weeks, I would just encourage you to go back on our website, and they're all there. You can, can listen to them, or if you have our app on your phone, you can find them there as well. Today is letter number seven to the church at Laodicea. And at the time of this letter, the city of Laodicea was among the wealthiest in the region. They were a prosperous banking and commercial center. They uh, just had wool and and carpets and then manufacturing and and those textile industries uh, was incredible there. They were also internationally respected for their medical school and their medical school made an eye salve which was very, very popular. It It was a booming city. It had a lot going for it. But one thing that it didn't have going for it, and this is kind of unusual, that in spite of its wealth, it did not have a natural water supply. And so what they did was they built stone aqueducts that brought water about six miles uh, from hot springs. You can imagine, though, after water travel for six miles, just anyway, but especially hot water when it started, imagine what it would be like when it got to its destination. And that's going to play a big part in what we talk about today, that idea of that water that started out hot but somehow was lukewarm. But also, all these other things will come into play in Jesus' letter. The idea of the banking and the idea of the manufacturing, the black wool that was a big part of their manufacturing, the idea of the eye salve, and, and of course, the water. So let's look at what Jesus has to say at the church at Laodicea. It's found in Revelation 3, and we're going to begin in verse 14. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus comes and he identifies himself to the church at Laodicea. He says, I'm the Amen. In the Old Testament, that would mean foundation. The idea being that God is a God of truth, that not only is he the God who speaks truth, but he is the truth. And Jesus identifies himself as that. And he says that because of that, he is a faithful and true witness of all that he writes, not just to the church at Laodicea, but to all the other churches as well. Also, he says that he is the ruler of God's creation, which can also be translated the beginning of the creation of God. Now, the reference doesn't mean that Jesus was the first part of creation, Or as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not eternal with God, but rather was the first and greatest creation. That's not what it says at all. What this really means is that he was from, well, what that phrase means is that from which creation begins. The idea is not only was he present at the creation of the world, 
but also he was the originating source of creation. And it brings to mind something that John wrote in John's Gospel, chapter 1, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and then he goes on to say that all things were made through him. So Jesus, as he does with the other churches, establishes his authority for writing this letter, right at the very beginning. But then he moves on in, in verse 15 and 16. He says to them, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm a big fan of the symphonies of Gustav Mahler. He's an Austrian composer from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And Mahler's life was a mixture of triumph and tragedy and optimism and hopelessness. And his music reflects the ups and downs in his life. And, and to be quite honest, uh, Mahler's music is kind of an acquired taste. Most people I know either love it or hate it. But regardless of that, his seventh symphony is, is a real interesting symphony. In fact, his seventh symphony is considered by many composers, and to quote one, as his hardest nut to crack. The idea of all his symphonies, it's the most difficult one as a conductor to interpret and to get right. Well, I would say that Jesus' seventh letter to the church at Laodicea is Jesus' hardest nut to crack when it comes to his letters to the seven churches. Now, it doesn't appear that way on the surface. And many times, sermons just kind of go along and they kind of play fast and loose with this passage and it, they make it say whatever sounds good depending on whatever preconceived idea that whoever's presenting it has. And as long as you skim along the surface and as you can pretty much make the passage say just about anything you want it to say. But if your goal is to try to really get at the heart of what Jesus is trying to say here, then it really takes some study and it really takes some discernment and it really takes some time. Because the last thing you want to do is to try to make this text say something that Jesus never intended it to say in the first place. Let me give you a case in point. Many interpret these verses to say that Jesus would prefer one of two extremes. In other words, he would rather they be hot, which literally means boiling here. He would rather they be hot, in other words, full of passion for the things of God, or he would rather they be cold, literally ice cold, which some interpret to mean that they have no faith at all. So a lot of people will take this passage and they'll say, well, Jesus would either like someone who is on fire for him, or he'd rather just have someone who is ice cold and, and had no faith at all. Now, that could be what it says here. I find it a little difficult sometimes because I, I wonder, you know, is Jesus being sarcastic or is he being dramatic? Or, or, or would Jesus really prefer that some people had no faith at all? He's saying that eh, it would be preferable to people who just kind of are lukewarm and have a little faith. That's one interpretation of this particular passage. I take a little bit different view uh, of what Jesus has to say here. Because I believe that both cold and hot are positives in this case. And I kind of base my belief, if you look at the situation in Laodicea, cold water was preferred for drinking. 
and hot water was preferred for bathing. Now, they had no natural water supply, so when you pipe water six miles, the hot water, by the time it got to where it was going, it was cold. Well, not cold, it was actually lukewarm. And any cold water that they might get from the mountains by the time it got there would be lukewarm as well. And both are distasteful, and both were distasteful to the residents at the time. So here's what I think Jesus is saying. I, I think Jesus says here, if you were either hot, in other words, for bathing, or cold for drinking, you would be useful. But as it is, I feel toward you the way you feel toward your water supply. In other words, you make me sick. So I think what Jesus is after here is he wishes the church would either be hot, they'd be therapeutic, they would be on fire, or that they would have this cold and refreshing purity about them. That's, that's what Jesus is after. But what he finds is people who are in the middle, who are lukewarm. And you can spend all your time trying to debate that and seeing what Jesus really means by hot or what he really means by cold. But the focus here is on the lukewarm. That's where the focus is, on the lukewarm. So here's the key question. Who are the lukewarm? Who are they? Well, some people differ here as well. Some people believe that, that they are actually Christians, true believers in Jesus Christ, but they've kind of gotten complacent and they've kind of drifted away from the, the faith. And, and this, this hot, passionate faith that they had at one time has just grown lukewarm. And then there are others who believe that the lukewarm Jesus is talking about are people who had no faith at all. They thought they were Christians. They maybe acted some like Christians, but they had never had an experience with Christ. So the two interpretations, either real Christians who've kind of faded away or people who were never Christians at all. I actually think it could mean both. If you think about it, there are believers today who have become lukewarm. And churches all over have people who are Christians, but have become lukewarm. They believe they had a legitimate experience with Jesus Christ, but there's no fiery passion for living for him. And there's not that cold, refreshing purity that Jesus desires. Now, they're not totally disinterested, and they're not totally uninfluenced. Uh, Jesus has a moderate influence on their lives. I mean, they might pray a few minutes every other day or so. They might say grace before meals if they're at home. They might read the Bible kind of now and then. They might share a Bible story with their children before they go to bed. They may go to church occasionally. They may even participate in some kind of service project now and then. But really what happens is they, they have made Jesus their Savior, but they're hesitant to make him their Lord. In fact, their faith is practiced with the same mantra that they might have for other indulgences in life, being moderation in all things. They practice moderation in what they eat. They practice moderation in the exercise they get. They practice moderation in what they drink. And they also practice moderation when it comes to their faith. 
That's one explanation of who the lukewarm could be. The other one, I believe there are people, and I don't get to judge this, and I am grateful that I don't have to judge this, but there are people, I believe, in, in churches um, who claim to be Christians, but, but simply are not. I think it happens. I mean, they may be in church every Sunday. They may be involved in activities. They may quote scripture now and then. They may have even taught a class uh, or, or led a group at one time. Uh, and they're not outwardly hostile to the faith. Uh, they've never done anything to, to discredit it verbally. They, they talk a good talk. But the problem is they've never experienced the new birth. And what happens is what they speak with their lips has never occurred in their hearts. And, and they are the people, I believe, that Jesus speaks of when he says that not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But regardless of which view you have or whether it's a combination of views, here's the key point in this. There is no positive side to being lukewarm. Either way, either way you look at it, whether you are a Christian who's become lukewarm or whether you were never a believer in the first place, there is no positive side to being lukewarm because both make Jesus sick. And the words that he uses here he says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That's the good news for right now, as about to means it hasn't happened yet, but it's getting maybe very close. But the image he uses here is very strong. If he had just said, look, because you're lukewarm, uh, I'm really disappointed in you guys. That wouldn't have had the impact. Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out. Some people say it means to vomit you out. That's graphic, and that gets your attention. The idea that, that lukewarm is nauseating to Jesus and there is no positive side. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but it's graphic and it's sobering. And what I think for all of us is that it should give us reason to do some serious thinking about our relationship to Jesus Christ. I really do. We can't get hung up on definitions. It's not about definitions. It's about relationships. So the two things that I really believe we need to sure up, do I really have, the first thing, do I really have a relationship to Jesus Christ? Am I truly a believer? Am I truly someone who has given my life to Jesus Christ? Am I a Christian, for real? That's something we need to sure up. And the other thing we need to sure up is if indeed we are a believer then we need to live our lives in such a way that we have a fiery passion for the things of God and also that we have this cold, refreshing purity about us. Those are both things that we need to sure up in our lives because both of those things make Jesus sick and both of those things, Jesus says, he's going to spit us out. Do I know exactly what he means by that? No, I don't, but I'm not taking the chance. And I don't think you should either. It's dangerous, it's dangerous to take a chance, and it's dangerous to remain lukewarm. Here's what he says in verse 17 and 18. He says, you say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. 
But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. One characteristic that you find in the lukewarm is self-deception. Self-deception. Another key point, self-deception is the mental state of the lukewarm. Self-deception is the mental state of the lukewarm. And usually, this self-deception will show itself in self-sufficiency. You see, despite the difficulties that existed in Laodicea with the water supply, they were a prosperous city. They had overcome that major obstacle and they had become a prosperous city. In fact, they were so prosperous, there was an earthquake. And they received damage from this earthquake in A.D. 60. They were so prosperous, they turned down financial assistance from the Roman government. They said, we don't need it. We got it covered. We don't need your help. They were proud of their wealth. And not only was the city wealthy, but there's reason to believe the church was wealthy as well. And some of these believers had believed that my wealth is God's reward for me being good. So I have convinced myself that because I am wealthy, it means I'm living right because God's taking care of me. And that's the wrong way to think. Because what happened was, what they could buy and touch and see had become more important to them and more valuable to them than the things that were unseen and the things that were eternal. You can't find self-sufficiency in your wealth. And you can't interpret what you have or don't have in material goods as a gauge of whether you're living right or not. Now, another way self-deception comes in is when you perceive virtues that don't exist. You perceive virtues in yourself that don't exist. People will say, well, I, I'm a good person. Well, Jesus kind of said there isn't anybody good, uh, only, only God. But we perceive that good virtue inside of ourselves. And because I'm a good person, then, then God's going to reward me for, for being a good person. So all I need to do is keep being a good person. Well, some people say, well, I got all I need. I don't need God. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I can make this. I'll get to heaven some way. Or, or, or I'm in control. And what Christ comes to them and what he says to these lukewarm folks in Laodicea is he says, look, you have convinced yourself that you are all these things. You have convinced yourself that you are virtuous, that you are wealthy, that you are self-sufficient. And Jesus comes to them and says, but in reality, you are the opposite. Jesus comes to them and he says, instead of all the things you think you are, you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. He cuts right through this idea that they got all that they need. 
and he tells the truth. But in telling the truth, he tells them what they need to do. He doesn't just state their condition. He says, here's what you need to do about your condition. And remember I said earlier, all of these things about the city, their commerce, their wool industry, all of that's going to come into play. Jesus says to the Laodiceans, he says for them to buy their gold from him. To buy their gold from him. Their gold being real spiritual treasure. Real spiritual treasure. And to be clothed, remember they had this great industry, not with the black wool that they produced, but he says be clothed with white clothes. In other words, his righteousness. They want to put on his righteousness. And they were famous for eye salve. But he says, look, get your medicine from me. Medicine that will open your eyes to the truth. Those are the things that you need to do. Just remember, Jesus, when he comes to us and when he convinces us of our true state, he doesn't just say, hey, you think you're something, but in reality, you're not worth anything. He doesn't just come to us and say that. He says, here's the remedy. Here's the remedy. Get your riches from me, true spiritual riches. Wear my clothes, righteousness, Let my medicine open your eyes to the truth. Those are the things we need to do to get out of our lukewarmness. But here's the really amazing thing to me about this passage. This is the letter that Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say about the church at Laodicea. Nothing at all. In spite of that, And in spite of the fact that their lukewarmness makes Jesus sick, in spite of the fact that they are deceiving themselves, in spite of the fact that they have become an arrogant lot, there's hope. There's hope. In spite of all of that, he says there's hope. Now, he hasn't spit them out yet, but he offers them words of love, And words of rescue. It says in verse 19. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come in. And eat with that person. And they with me. To the one who is victorious. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The key point in all of that, there is hope for the lukewarm. There is hope for the lukewarm. Whether you were never a believer to begin with, there is hope for you. Whether you are a believer who has slidden back into lukewarmness, there is hope for you as well. Jesus says, first of all, 
He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He still loved the lukewarm. In spite of all their problems, in spite of all of their kind of self-delusions, Jesus loved them. Or he never would have given them these words of hope. But he does say to them, those whom I love, I also discipline. So even in discipline, for their disobedience, it's discipline out of love. And he wants to assure them of that. There have been many believers, there have been many churches that have gone through times of difficulty. And those times have been allowed to, to happen. To wake people up is a way of discipline. To show them that they're not living as they need to live for God. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. God loves them and that's why he allows this discipline with the hope that the discipline will produce results. And then he says, be earnest and repent. The church at Laodicea had to repent of their pride and they had to humble themselves before God. And for those of us who are lukewarm, that's what we need to do. Lukewarm, Jesus says it makes him sick, so it's something we have to repent from. It's something we have to repent from. And we have to be earnest and sincere about our repentance and come back to him. And then he says... He stands at the door and knocks. Often we use this passage when we talk about evangelism and when we talk about people who are not Christians. But here, what he's talking about, the basic application is for this lukewarm church. In other words, Jesus is standing outside of the church at Laodicea and he's knocking. And he speaks and he says, if anyone... Speaking to the individual, he says, if anyone is in there, if anyone will come and open the door, then I will come in and I will do great things. One individual. He's speaking to the individual. He knocks. He says, if just one of you will open the door. The idea that he's knocking does not mean that he's impatient. When he says he stands, it's, it, the meaning of that is the idea that he's making his stand there and, and, he, and he's knocking. He's, he's determined, but it's not an impatience. And he knocks through circumstances and he calls us through his word. But what is he wanting? Why is he knocking? What does he want when we open the door? What he wants is fellowship and communion and a people's desire to abide in him. So what about for those of us who have ears? If I can paraphrase John Piper, basically he says that Christ didn't die to redeem a bride who would keep him on the porch while she watched television in the living room. But rather, his will for the church is that they open the door and that they open the doors of their individual lives. Because he doesn't want to just stand out there on the porch. He wants to come in and join them in the dining room and spread a meal out for them and to eat with them and to talk with them. And John Piper says, The opposite of lukewarmness is the fervor you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus Christ in the innermost room 
of your heart. And when Jesus Christ, the source of all God's creation, is dining with you in your heart, then you have all the gold you need, you have all the clothes you need, you have all the medicine you need in the spiritual sense. When you invite him to come in and to live in you and to dine with you and to spread it out, all that he has before you. When he does that, you have everything that you need. Jesus says to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. For those of us who overcome this lukewarmness that we have and this spiritual self-satisfaction, to those of us who overcome that, for those of us who repent, for those of us who open the door, we experience a power and we experience a victory. And it can only come from one place and that's a real relationship with Jesus Christ. So the challenge for us today is if you've never opened that door, don't take a chance. You need to do it today. If you think you're a believer, you need to open it because you need to know you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It's something you need to know. It's something you need to be sure of, not take a guess at. And if you are a believer and you've known you've, you've, you've gone from this, man, I was always just on fire. I had this fiery passion for the things of God. And, and in my life, I really tried to have this, this cold, icy cold, refreshing purity about me. If, if that's become lukewarm, then you need to take care of that today. The only way that we're going to have victory is if we take care of those things. And Jesus gives us the opportunity to do that. So please... Don't let that opportunity pass you by, regardless of your interpretation of lukewarm. Let's pray.